I loved that someone did this study about, you know, roosters who fake tidbit, <laughs> like pretend that there's food when there's not and that the hens are like, oh, I am I am on to you. Like you are calling me over, not giving me anything in return. And then they remember um, not just at that time, but like days later when it's time for mating, they're like, absolutely not. <laughs> None, none for you. You did not give me the treats that you said you were going to. So that's it. Relationship over. That was Tova Danovich. I'm Rich Bolas, and this is The Dad Mindset Show. This episode, I chat with journalist and author Tova Danovich, who wrote the book Under the Henfluence, inside the world of backyard chickens and the people who love them. Now, this is a very special episode for me because my co-host is someone who truly loves chickens and just so happens to be my eldest daughter, Annika. Now, Annie has loved chickens for years and years, and recently, lots and lots of families have been asking us for help in how to get started in keeping their own chickens. So, we thought we'd put together an episode that will give you an overview of the things to consider before starting a flock and when setting up a chicken coop as well as a whole host of fascinating things about chickens that you might not know and I certainly didn't know. Anyway, I hope you take as much from this chat with Tova as I did. Tova Danovich, welcome to the show. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Now, this one's a bit special because it was inspired by uh, my daughter Annie, who's here as well. Hi. Hi. <laughs> now, Annie, do you want to tell Tova a bit about why you wanted to speak with her? Yeah, I've actually been quite interested in chickens since the middle of COVID, I think. Like, we've always had chooks before then, but when we hatched out some baby chicks for the first time, because we had a broody hen, one of them imprinted on me. And so that was actually, that was really special. And we actually raised her by herself and she doesn't we don't think she thinks she's a chook, but she'll follow me around. And um, she's she's kind of at the bottom of the pecking order. Well, not now because we've added some more hens in there. Mm-hmm. But, um, yeah, she's got, like, puffy hair on her head and um, she's actually just gone through molting. And so you oh, can no. actually see her eyes for the first time. Mm-hmm. And um, I'm actually – I think I've got a photo of her. Oh, great. Is she a Polish? Uh, no, she's a Americana. Okay. That was her when she was a baby. She actually had, we had to put little tape, like tape on her feet because we hatched her in an incubator because there was no more room under our broody hen. And, Mm -hmm. um, she had like really curly toes and she couldn't walk properly. And that's her when she's older. Oh, we had that with one of our hens, Olivia. Um, we got her from a hatchery. When she came, a couple of her toes were actually fused together and crooked. So we had to do some chick surgery, which is always a great time, and then also tape them. And she still has a couple that are crooked, but a few of them straightened out. So I was I was pleased, but she gets along fine today. That's it's, great. It's amazing what you can actually help with at that stage, isn't it? Yeah, I know. I I did not think her feet were going to become uncrooked at all. Um, I was like, this is really a, a hail mary situation here, because <laughs> uh, we have a really great chicken vet, but still taking a a baby chick like forty minute drive um, seemed treacherous. So it seemed like something that might might go better doing it at home, yeah. which is not something I expected when I got chickens that I would have to become like a part time veterinarian at all. <laughs> So what what is your backstory? Like what got you into chickens in the first place, Tova? Yeah, so I was a food writer for many years. I've been a journalist for a long time, um, but I was living in New York City and I was writing a lot about kind of like sustainable farming and and eating and like eating local, which was really big at the time, kind of in the 2010s or so. Um, and a lot of people were getting into backyard chickens around then. There was kind of the first boom of like urban chicken having. Um, and of course, being in New York City, not super conducive to having chickens. <laughs> no. Um, but they seemed nice and I'd spent enough time around them to know like I will be willing to be the one that is responsible for your, your care. Um, So my husband and I moved to Portland, Oregon, where we live now, and we got a house that actually has a yard um, and space to put a coop and some chickens. Um, And so I got my first three 
chicks um, that I started with. And I really like I thought they were just going to lay eggs and that was it and kind of, you know, pay rent in exchange situation, like very utilitarian, um, which given that I love animals, I don't know why I thought that would be the case. Um, But we had their brooder right across from my office in the bathroom. And so I would just take little breaks to go visit them and, and hang out. And, you know, they're so charming. You can't help but really fall in love with them so that's that's how we got here (laughs) (laughs) who's taught you the most about chickens tova then on your journey that is such a good question um i feel like so many people have taught me different pieces about chickens which was one of the really fun things about writing under the henfluences you know like i can't interview the chickens, unfortunately. So I, I have Speaking to talk the to chickens. people. I know. Um, I can kind of guess at what they're thinking, which I, I try um, in the book, but I don't really know what's going on. Um, so I read a lot of different studies about chickens. I talked to a lot of people that are doing various things with chickens. Um, but there is one researcher in particular, I think her name is Carolyn Smith, um, and she actually works at, I think, Macquarie University, but she's done a lot of studies on like the behavior and welfare of hens in a way that looked at them more as normal animals. Um, and that was really rare to come across. And so I relied pretty heavily on on her studies to kind of make make the case for some of these things that I was seeing in my hens, like that they had you know, relationships or had empathy towards each other, I believe, is one of the things that she showed in chickens. Um, so that was immensely helpful. I think the the relationships, uh, I think people have sort of intuited a bit when they've seen chicks, but talk to me about the empathy. That's fascinating. Yeah. So in the study, I believe what it was, was something along the lines of there was a mother hen and she had some chicks and someone blew like air on the chicks, which made them start peeping and get really upset. And then the mother hen gets really upset on on their behalf, of course. Um, but it's like she didn't have air blown on her. Like she doesn't know. She just knows that they are upset and then she becomes upset, which is a funny thing when you're doing science with animals. Um, you know, that that study feels kind of obvious in retrospect. And of course, like mother hens are so known for being these amazing protectors of their chicks and they'll make themselves as big as humanly possible or chickenly possible um, to try and protect them and, and look scary. Um, but you do really need in science to have someone do this study and do a, a control to really say like, no, they do care and they they are affected by what happens to the other members of, of their flock or their brood. Yeah, it's fascinating. And when you just use the word like mother hen, so much mm-hmm. language is tied up in, I guess, chickenology, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Uh, like, what's some of your favorite language that I guess we take for granted and don't even connect to the what? Yeah, I mean, we we got our hens before COVID, but you know, when everyone was stuck at home, like you talk about being cooped up all the time, and that that of course comes comes from chickens in in their coop. Um, that's probably the most normal, but uh, certainly the term the pecking order, um, which I talk about in the book too. I think most people don't know that that comes from chickens, and and specifically this man who. Um, you know, I think Wikipedia refers to him as a zoologist, but he mostly is known for there was this flock of chickens that he visited from the time he was a small boy, um, like in Norway, going to his grandma's farm. And he just watched their behavior and took like a lot of little notes about about what they were doing and, you know, their relationship to each other. Um, and that's where the pecking order comes from. Um, and I, I love all of the science that we have in the world that comes from people who just really get obsessed and care about, you know, the chickens in their backyard or what are the bees doing or or something of that nature. Yeah. Well, talking of people that get obsessed, I've got one sat right next to me. Have <laughs> <laughs> you got any questions for Tova? Yeah. What are some misconceptions about chickens? Oh, there are so many. Um, I think people think that they're dumb is, is the first one. Um, in in the states, I don't know if this is as common of a story over there, but we had Mike the headless chicken 
back in the 50s, there was a farmer who was trying to have, you know, a chicken for dinner and I guess cut off this chicken's head, but like didn't sever the spinal cord. So the chicken was still up and about. And this being like the 50s, people are really into sideshow attractions. So he toured this chicken all over that basically behaved like a chicken. It just... He did not have a head <laughs> anymore um, and was fed through a dropper actually directly into his esophagus, which is wild. Um, but, you know, it doesn't speak very well for chickens that they could literally not have a head and still get on for a year after that. Um, but chickens really are are so much more intelligent than people give them credit for. And they're not you know, using tools the way crows do or doing art like bowerbirds or, or anything like that. Um, but they have this really complex system of calls that they use to communicate with each other. They form really strong bonds with members of the flock. Um, they can recognize individuals and solve problems like they're social learners. So if one chicken learns how to do something in the flock, they pick up on that thing just by watching them and will pass it on to each other, which is like basically the definition of culture. Um, so when you take some time to get to know them, I think you realize how much is really going on in in the chicken mind. Um, so that's a big one. But, you know, a lot of people don't even know that chickens can fly or that eggs are actually seasonal. So the list of misconceptions is unfortunately very long. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And you mentioned language as well. The questions that jump to mind straight away are, is there like even dialects or is there different calls for different species and things like that? That is such a good question. And I don't know that anyone has really done research on that. Um, I mean, I know that specific flocks will develop characteristics over time. And and of course, in a lot of people that keep farm flocks, like they're not keeping the hens alive for a really long time or the chicks are maybe brooded artificially, which... I think inhibits the ability of some of those things to be passed on. Um, but when you look throughout animals, there are so many examples when you have social animals of, you know, this group starts doing this one little thing and it's a trend that takes off or this group knows how to do this or, you know, likes this fruit and doesn't like this fruit. So I would be very surprised to not see that in chickens. Um, but we just haven't looked into it very much. I do know there are some real differences between domestic chickens and their wild jungle fowl ancestors, um, which gets really interesting once you get into hybrids of the two, because they actually do frequently pick up, like the roosters will do the jungle fowl style cock-a-doodle-doo, which sounds a little bit like someone just strangles them at the end, like that last <laughs> note just cuts off. Um, so that is a specific dialect that I know scientists that have, you know, studied both domestic and these feral or wild chickens can tell like, oh, this is the wild chicken type call versus a normal one. We've actually got a chicken that um, doesn't really have a gender. Mm -hmm. she, she lays eggs, but she'll occasionally do a really loud call, like a rooster's <laughs> call. Mm -hmm. And um, my mum's heard her quite a few times and I've heard her a couple times. And um, she's also got this like, it's not her waddle, but she's got like these feathers that mm. are kind of like. Like a like, little beard? Yeah, like a beard. I so, that. Uh, I think, <laughs> like, because for us living in 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 the suburbs, it's you know, no, no, you can't have a rooster. So, whenever we get Same. sort of chicks, it's like, oh my gosh, have we got like half a batch of roosters here? And so, we're highly attuned to was that a rooster call we just heard? <laughs> like, as they're mm -hmm. growing up, because it's like, oh no, got to get rid of some more roosters. Um, I know. So, so, I mean, hard. talking about like backyard chucks, and like we say chucks. It took me ages to get I, used to that word. I love the term chuck. It's so <laughs> adorable to me. I wish it would catch on here. So it's it's nice to hear it in the wild. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, so getting started, like we've had so many people, and this is also part of the reason to reach out to you. We've had loads of people reach out, want to ask us as uh, how did the how to get started as a family that has chickens mm -hmm. because it is a bit you know sort of it's totally new it's not like getting a dog or a cat so what advice would you give to someone a family just starting out with chooks for the first time yeah um the main thing is you know there's so many amazing how-to books out there about chickens and 
I'm I love research on my own, but especially when you're bringing an animal home, like doing your research first makes things so much easier and and more helpful um, that you don't get surprised by things in the moment nearly as much. Um, so, you know, get get some books from your library or, or the bookstore and, and look through it. Um, but barring that, you know, I think chickens are quite easy, which is great. Um, that's one of my favorite things. We have two dogs, too, who I I love dearly. They're very spoiled. Um, they get to sleep on the bed every once in a while. Uh, but they they need a lot from you, dogs. Um, like if you're not around, they're sad. If you, you know, have to go on vacation, you really feel bad for leaving them behind. Um, the chickens, as long as someone's giving them treats and letting them out, they're like, it's fine. No, no problems. Uh, which is really lovely because, you know, we all have very busy lives. So you don't have to hang out with them unless you want to that day. Um, I think the most important thing that you can do when you are setting up for chickens um, is think about their housing. I think that really makes or breaks people's experience going into chicken keeping, um, not just for, you know, logistical things like, are rodents going to get in and then become a problem? Like that's something that's good to think about ahead of time because rats are just everywhere and suddenly you will see them if there is chicken food uh, being left around long enough. Um, but also for ease of cleaning, you know, I'm I'm tall, so having a coop that I'm able to actually walk into versus like, oh, you have to crawl on your hands and knees every time you do this. In, in like, chicken those poop. Are, yeah, those are just practical things that I think people don't really think through, um, but really make a difference because it cuts down on the time. Um, and then making sure that that coop actually is really going to be predator proof for them um, because the saddest way to start your flock is to get all these chicks who you like love and you've raised and then something comes along and, and eats them. And that that is no fun for anyone, um, certainly not for the chickens, but also for, for you. So I think those are the main things that I tell people to really think hard about um, before they, they jump into this. I, I hear people talk about chickens need to sun themselves and things like that. Mm -hmm. So like are there are other things that you need to even think about where you put it. Like it's not next to the house or in shade or. Yeah, it really depends on the weather where you live, which can be difficult. Um, and especially with, you know, the climate, how it is. We, we're on the West coast of the United States. So thinking about like wildfire smoke now is a thing. And I've had to bring our chickens into the house actually a couple of times when our air quality was like so hazardous and birds have such, um, sensitive respiratory systems that, a lot of people I know that weren't able to bring their their flocks inside like did lose a number of birds in the weeks after that. Um, and there are breeds that are more suited for, you know, if you live in Alaska and it's going to be 20 below zero a lot of the year, like maybe don't get a Mediterranean breed <laughs> that does really, really well where it's sunny. Um, so those those are all good things to think about. Um, and it depends so much, too, on whether you are going to be able to let your chickens free range or whether they're in the coop all the time or most of the time. Um, I, I always think the more space you can give your chickens, the happier you will be, the happier they will be. Um, mine have a nice little... Uh, tub that I put like a dust bathing material in. So even if they can't get outside, they can go and like clean off their feathers and in the little dust bath. But if your girls are getting out regularly, you probably don't need that because they will find their favorite place probably in like your flower bed or amidst the <laughs> zucchinis uh, to dust bathe on their own. <laughs> that was one of my questions because I was even wondering like, is dust bathing a thing? Like, do they, why do they do it? Does it just feel good or is there actually utility to it? I'm sure it does feel good. Um, ours always seem to have the best time. And I, I don't know if you two have had the pleasure of hearing your chickens purr before. Um, that was something I was so surprised by. Have you? I haven't. Have you, Annie? Yeah, I think so. Annie's nodding. <laughs> um, yeah, they make this little sound very deep in their chest, only when they're like the peak of chicken happiness peak that chicken. is a chicken, <laughs> chicken purr. Um, and ours usually do it when they find like a really good dust bathing spot in the sun. They're like, this is the best. Nothing has ever been better <laughs> than this moment. And they'll do this soft little purr and it's, it's lovely to listen to. Um, 
But it does have a real practical purpose. I mean, birds or chickens anyway, they don't take water baths like we do. Um, and they have these feathers that they rely on to, you know, help them stay warm or cool off. And they have to keep those feathers in, in good shape and get rid of things like mites and dust that might get into that. So when they dust bathe, all that nice dust, they're just collecting, you know, probably pounds of it <laughs> in their feathers and like rubbing it all around. And then they shake it off into that giant cloud. And when that cloud releases, you know, all those little bugs that might have found their way and all the excess oils, that's all getting rubbed away and keeps them and their feathers much healthier. So it's basically like the shower water washing off of, of our bodies just for, for chickens. Wow, completely different lens now. <laughs> um, so, I mean, you mentioned mites. What are some of the, I guess, maladies or things you've got to watch out for when you have backyard chickens? Especially for backyard chickens, I think the main thing which many people are surprised by are all of the reproductive issues that the chickens can have. Um, the jungle fowl that chickens come from, they lay like 10 to 15 eggs a year. Um, that's a lot fewer eggs than our like production breeds. If you were to go to a farm today, that's like 280 to 300 eggs a year that those birds are, are laying. And it takes a lot of work to lay an egg and it's hard on their systems. Um, in a lot of places, I mentioned that eggs are supposed to be a seasonal product. Usually they just kind of lay them between spring toward the end of fall and then they, they go on a nice like winter break naturally and that gives their system a break. Um, but that doesn't really work in farming. And even a lot of people with backyard chickens like to use supplemental light that kind of tricks their bodies into laying year round. Um, so they can quite easily have issues like eggs getting stuck or broken inside of them or like ovarian cancer and other issues of that nature. And I think many chickens, especially if you're buying breeds that are, are going to be laying a lot of eggs, those are the things that you most have to watch out for and are just extremely common. Um, other than that, though, it's, you know, they kind of hide illnesses. I think foot health is really important on chickens and people don't really think about that a lot, but they use their feet for everything. You know, they're, they're scratching, they're walking around, they're perching. Um, and they can get issues like bumblefoot, which is a little bacterial infection. So I like to check my chickens feet every so often, which, they don't like that I do that, but <laughs> yeah. it is for their own good. Um, so that's that's a good thing to keep an eye on. And also just parasites um, can happen, especially if your chickens are, are free ranging around and you might might have to treat for something like that every so often too. Yeah. And is that just as simple as, I mean, I think we've used droppers in water. You sort of mm -hmm. keep the water away from them for a day and then put some in and they're all like super thirsty and they drink, drink, yeah, the, drink it, the medicine. It so depends, and it's difficult because, um, at least in the states, until I don't know some some recent years ago, you could just buy whatever antibiotics you wanted for your chickens, and people would just give that when they thought they had a problem. Which, of course, is why we have this this real issue worldwide of antibiotic resistant bacteria, um, and like chicken farms, you know, very commonly do low levels of antibiotics, which helps that problem too. Um, so that is something to think about. I am lucky enough to have this wonderful vet. So when I'm worried about my chickens, I get a little fresh poo sample and I drive it over <laughs> to the vet and she looks at it under a microscope and will be like, oh, you have this kind of protozoa or you don't have something. And like, here is specifically the thing we will use to treat this that you have instead of just throwing a bunch of stuff because yeah. your chicken is sick. So like surely one of them must work. Um, I know that is not available to most people. And there are some like natural remedies that I know some people really like. It's hard to say how helpful or not they are. Mm. Um, honestly, you know, there's a chapter in my book on chicken veterinary care for a reason because it's it's hard to come by and we really don't know a lot about it on like a backyard flock level so it is difficult i wish i just had an, an easy answer on, <laughs> yeah no no front. totally we get that too don't we annie oh yeah i've been wanting this breed of chicken for quite a long time and over the holidays i actually i found her at <clears throat> this lady's petting zoo and she mm -hmm. said i could have her for 20 bucks so 
What type of chick was it? Uh, so her name's um, her name's Dolly after mm-hmm. Dolly Parton because she's got big hair and mm-hmm. she's a frizzle chicken. Um, Lovely. I think she's a frizzle cross, cross silky. And mm-hmm. when we got her, um, we were living up at my auntie's at the time and we just got this um, batch of uh, baby chicks from my mum's kindergarten because mm-hmm. they didn't want them anymore. So um, <laughs> we put Dolly in with those chicks thinking that they'd get along, but um, actually they kept sitting on her and they kept like <laughs> jumping over her. And then what was really sad though, when we woke up the next morning, she had a neck like this and mm-hmm. she, she was walking around in circles mm-hmm. and she couldn't really, well, like I said, she couldn't really walk. So we ended up just choosing one chick that we thought would go well with her. Um, her name's Spider. And mm-hmm. um, we took those two back home and we gave Dolly some antibiotics. My auntie, because my auntie's, she trained to be a vet. She gave us some antibiotics to give to Dolly. And she also gave us, um, what was it, yeast to put in her food because mm-hmm. apparently that was good for her. And mm-hmm. um, we tried, we gave it to her. And then uh, oh, we also gave her um, multivitamins and it worked. Her neck's fine now. Great. That's amazing. Because yeah, I think the, the, the normal sort of um, analysis of what it would have been was a certain neck condition where they're, they're done for. Um, yeah. It? I, it sounds Rhyneck? a little bit like Rhyneck. Rhyneck, yeah, Rhyneck. Yeah, yeah. Which I know is like a vitamin deficiency. So that makes sense that you right. would have done, done some vitamins. Yeah. So that but. was a good success story of like leaning on yeah. uh, Auntie Lisa, who uh, has <laughs> spent many years sort of husbanding or, yeah, actually, that's another yeah. thing. Why, why do we call it? chicken husbandry or animal husbandry why isn't it like whiffery or anything like yeah that? <laughs> it, it should be i mean especially when women have such a long history of of being the primary caregivers for for chickens i think um husbanding is actually an old like scandinavian term it's like husbonder but i i forget what it means i'm i'm norwegian i like studied this a long uh. time ago and now it's all gone from my head um but i i think it's like the root word of that where you were like tied to this this house and the property and, and the care of it so yeah Ah, oh, etymology. It's awesome. Yeah. Um, you'll, you'll have to fact check me, but I'm pretty <laughs> sure that's, that is where the term comes from. But wivery is also fine. We can use that. Yeah. No, <laughs> obviously getting started is a big thing. So I guess, um, what are the most nutritious foods for chickens? Chickens love to eat so many things. Um, and I think it's wonderful if you are able to let your chickens free range in the yard. They will find so many things that you just can't possibly give them and, and kind of give themselves a really varied diet. I think like most omnivorous animals, you know, eating a little bit of everything is, is what's going to be best for chickens. Um, so they love eating bugs. You know, they need to get rocks for that grit um, to help them digest food. They love a lot of different greens. Um, I recently had a problem in my flock, actually. They they love dandelion greens, and our yard has so many dandelions right now. So I was just going and, like, giving them five giant leaves of dandelion greens every day um, and then noticed that a bunch of them had really poopy butts all the time. I was like, oh, no, they have, have a parasite. Like, what? What's happening? So drove a little poop sample to the vet, as I <laughs> mentioned earlier. Um, and she didn't see anything wrong, but was asking what I was feeding them um, and said, oh, dandelion greens, like it's a little rich for their system. So even though it's good in moderation, it just kind of like cleans everything out in a way that like maybe you don't want for your your chickens unless you like giving them baths, which no one does. Um, they don't like it. I don't like it. Um, so I have been far more judicious in how much of things I give them. But yeah, they they love food scraps and they are very good for them as long as you make sure to not do, you know, too much of any one thing and make sure they have a good like, um, you know, balanced feed uh, that you are getting. And most of the commercial feeds I think are are fine generally. Yeah. With, with the scraps, I mean, are there any like don't feeds? There are. I know avocados are a no-no. Um, you have to be really careful with, of course, like fats and salts. Um, I mean, things that would be bad for us don't 
don't give like Cheetos to your chickens. I, I've seen some people do that, but like, do they need to eat Cheetos? I don't think so. <laughs> it's, it, it's actually scary. The the type of food some like chickens or dogs won't eat that are actually yeah. designed for us. And you're like, oh my gosh, if a dog or a chicken is not yeah. eating this, that's not a good sign. I know. This is bad. Um, <laughs> but yeah, most, most like leafy greens, they love like stone fruits, um, grapes, you know, things, things like that, I think are all generally fine. But yeah, I know chocolate, avocado, I can't remember the other, but there, there are some pretty good lists of like the no-nos yeah. online. Oh, great. And you mentioned gizzards earlier. Mm-hmm. Like, I, I had no idea. And he's trying to explain to me that chicken actually have teeth. And, and I was yeah. like, chicken don't have teeth. What are you talking about? Secret teeth. <laughs> yeah. Can you talk to us about that? Yeah. Chicken digestion is so weird and interesting. I guess bird digestion because it's, it's pretty similar. Um, but when they eat, you know, their food goes into their crop first, which I, I had heard of the crop because I did all this reading, but I still, when I had chicks for the first time, I was like, what is this thing on their neck that's appearing? Like, why do they have a tumor? What's wrong? Oh, so it's like um, a pouch. It sort of, it yeah, sticks it's, out when they're it's full. It's a pouch that, yeah, it fills with food and then it empties over about like 12 hours or so. Um, so it's kind of just a little storage place when they're eating, which does make it helpful for us humans if you're not sure if a chicken has had enough to eat, like go touch their neck until you find their crop and you you can know exactly if they've been eating if their crop is emptying properly um so for a diagnostic tool it's it's lovely um but from the crop things go down you know some more tubes into their gizzard or their stomach um and because they don't have teeth to like mash up their food they eat little like rocks and pebbles and it kind of works almost like a mortar and pestle system in this gizzard where it grinds all of the food down until it's small enough to go like through the rest of their their intestines from there. Um, I was really fascinated to learn, though, that's one of the reasons that birds are so susceptible to heavy metal poisoning and lead poisoning and things like that um, is because like if if you're a dog and you eat like a piece of galvanized wire, which has a lot of zinc and is, is not good for you, it just passes right through your system and, and out the other end, no problem. But for a bird, that piece of zinc will sit in their gizzard getting flaked like into their body over time until there is nothing left, which can give them heavy metal poisoning and, and be quite bad. And I I have had that happen in my flock because probably one of the hens got like a piece of a nail um, that was was sticking around. So um, when I learned that, I was like, oh, it makes perfect sense. You always hear about like lead poisoning and, and birds. And that is why, because of how, how their little gizzards are, are doing things. Yeah. Oh, it's just got me thinking maybe uh, there might be some little wire off cuts, like when we've put chicken wire and stuff up, mm-hmm. like um, have to be a bit more careful. Oh. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I'm really worried about it now. <laughs> now you, you mentioned like obviously um, touching their crop to see like where they've mm-hmm. eaten, but that comes back in my mind. What's the best way to actually hold a chook? It's so hard. Is this contentious? Um, yeah. I mean, I think there are ways that are good to hold a chicken that keep them contained. And the main thing is that they feel better when their legs are secure. So, you know, you always want to like hold on to their legs or have a hand kind of on their belly, giving them support. And of course, you want their wings to be covered because otherwise they will flap them <laughs> and cause a problem. So those are, are kind of the two main things. But it changes so much depending like I have Emilou, who is a ducal bantam. She fits in the palm of my hand. The way I hold her is very different from my giant gray hen, Peggy, who weighs like a couple pounds easily. <laughs> and she's so big. Um, and often I like tuck her against my side more like a, a football when I'm holding her. Um, one of the things you want to watch when you're holding birds is not to compress their keel bone too much because they need that to be able to breathe. Um, so I always try and make sure that I'm not just holding them really tightly from the bottom to avoid that, that like some of the security is on my side if they're, they're heavier or coming from the top too. Yeah, good to know. I, I have this image in my head of, of Annie, actually, the first time I sort of realized that she was definitely into chickens, was <laughs> she was wearing, and hopefully this won't embarrass you too much, Annie, 
don't worry, no one's going to hear. Um, <laughs> she was wearing this like princess dress, and and mm-hmm. we'd gone around to a, a kindergarten to help feed the chooks in Adelaide. And the mm-hmm. girls that had taken us were young as well, and they were really proud to show Annie her the chickens. They didn't realise she'd grown up on a farm, and she mm-hmm. just wandered into this chook pen, and they were sort of at arm's length, like poking some food to the chickens. Mm-hmm. And Annie just walked in wearing this this like pink dress and just. <laughs> grabbed the chook and put it under one arm and then grabbed the other chook, put it under the other arm and just nice. stood there like holding a chicken under each arm. And that, it was like one of the proudest moments. <laughs> they were horrified. They were like, oh my gosh, she's actually holding a chicken. Then you all... put one on your head. It's fine. Uh, um, yes, that's uh, that's also yeah. a common feature in our house. <laughs> um, so obviously we've got the, so getting started, the things to watch out for, uh, best way to hold. I guess... How long do they actually live? Like, what are, you, what are you signing up for as a family if you start getting some backyard chickens? I think a lot of people don't really think too much about that side of things, partially because so many families start getting chickens entirely because they want a source of eggs, which is kind of where I started. Um, and when I first got chickens, I knew that commercially, like most farms, they will kill the laying hens at about like 18 months, maybe a little bit longer, um, which is not old at all because their their production wanes at that point, which is not to say that they stop laying eggs. But I got my chickens thinking like, oh, I will retire them with giant air quotes um, after a few years and then bring in new ones to keep a supply of eggs. Um, and now, of course, mine are pets that go to the vet and they will live here forever. Um, but people really don't know how long chickens can live because even though we're raising billions of them every year, most of them are killed prematurely. A lot of them are not bred to live a long time. Um, so like I mentioned earlier, there are, you know, these, these breeds that lay 300 eggs a year, um, and, you know, really high production that's hard on their system. Those, it's amazing if they live to five. Um, and I have some former battery hen rescues that I, I have had, and both of them did die from cancer after about two years with me and, you know, a year and a half to two years on the farm, which is a very, very long life for them. Um, on the other hand, there is a chicken right now that has, I think, the Guinness World Record for the longest life, and it's like 20 or 21. Um, so <laughs> it can really range, and especially if you're getting more into fancy breeds that aren't, you know, you're not relying on them for breakfast. They're just fun. Those are very likely to be living, you know, 8 to 13 years, certainly, um, and potentially longer, too. Wow. Okay. So, many so good luck yeah. planning, basically. <laughs> yeah. So, but but it's interesting, isn't it? Because that whole idea of selective breeding to make chickens lay more and more eggs is actually mm-hmm. something that's going to impact their longevity. So, when selecting Definitely. a breed, you know, got to be mindful of not just getting the the, the prolific layers if you want them to be mm-hmm. a, a family pet as well. Yeah. And, you know, the thing is, like, they might be laying a lot of eggs in those first couple of years, but then they die um, versus I have Peggy. She's still my one um, chick that's left from, like, the first three that I got. And she just turned five in April. And she regularly lays, like, as many eggs as, as the younger one. She's maybe slowing down slightly, but I think you get more years from them laying a little bit over time. Um, and especially in our like we have a two person household with eight chickens. Like we don't need more eggs. <laughs> I just had a friend pop by and like yeah, like give please take these eggs from us. They're all over our counter. So um yeah, I think having a, a chicken that lays a little bit of eggs for like many years is is a wonderful thing to consider. Yeah. Now you you mentioned free range as well. Like that hogs back to immediately thinking when you're in a supermarket what are the questions you should ask yourself if you don't want to be buying eggs that are causing massive harm to chickens it's really hard and it depends so much on where you live because the standards are so different um and especially in the united states like fingers crossed it's better there (laughs) but i have a feeling it's it's a mess everywhere our labeling for eggs is so confusing that I have 
like when I was a food writer, I wrote about this all the time. I am still confused about which things you are supposed to look for, which are the terms that are just marketing versus what actually has a legal definition. Um, it's very hard for consumers, even who want to do well, to know what what it means and what their money is is going towards. So I think the best best way um, is frequently if there's a farmer's market or someone down the road that raises their own chickens and you can buy from them um, and you know that those birds are are out on pasture at least some of the time, that's definitely going to be the best eggs that you can buy. Um, there are levels beneath that. Uh, you know, there's the industrial cage-free quote-unquote eggs, which are better than the eggs from hens that are in these tiny cages their their whole lives and they never get to go outside or or see the sun or anything. But um, those cage-free eggs are still, again, here, um, but like from hens raised in giant sheds with like sometimes hundreds of thousands of other birds and they're just cramped together in a room instead of cramped together in a cage. So they do get a little bit more room, but it's not a big improvement. Um, often, unfortunately, uh, my best advice is go with the eggs that cost a little bit more money than you would like to spend. And that is probably going to be the best because if you're seeing pasture-raised eggs and they're only like a dollar more than the ones from, you know, the, the cheapest that they have from hens and cages, like that's probably not, that is probably more marketing than, yeah. um, something that's actually giving the, the chickens lives. So I tend to go based on, on how much it costs if I don't actually yeah. know the farm it's coming from. Now, and like when you mentioned those big sort of sheds with hundreds of thousands of chickens in as well, that just speaks to me of like, you only have to have one bird that gets something like some kind of flu or anything. It's just going to go like wildfire through the whole thing. Yeah. Is that why they're given antibiotics and so on? Yes. Yeah. That, that is a lot of the reason for antibiotics. It's and like I know they have been exactly. Yeah. At, at low subtherapeutic levels. And I know that there are laws that are seeking to kind of cut down on that a little bit. Um, which is better than before when it was a, a free for all, but they still do much, so much. Um, like if one bird gets sick, they just treat the entire flock um, because it's it's easier than like pulling one bird away and having a, a chicken hospital somewhere in the back of these these giant farms. Um, so even if you are only treating for diseases, because you are then treating the entire flock for that disease, you're definitely using more antibiotics than than you need to in those situations. Um, and certainly with avian flu, which has been such a problem like everywhere um, for a couple of years now, um, the best way we have had of treating that is if one bird gets sick with avian flu, you kill every single one of the birds in in that barn, um, which just keeps the virus from spreading more. And I know they are working on like actually switching to vaccinating the chickens, which is wonderful. And I, I hope that that happens sooner rather than later because the loss of life has just been staggering from that. Um, but yeah, in industrially farmed animals are really like a hotbed for, for diseases. Yeah. And there's all other sort of horrible things that are done to them as well, isn't there? Like in yeah. those big flocks. I, I remember you talking about debeaking and so on. I didn't even know that mm -hmm. was a thing. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's pretty wild. Um I mean there are so many things like debeaking, they cut off the the tips of the chicken's beak so while they can peck, they can't actually damage each other. Um and one of the reasons that they started doing this is because when they stuffed a, a bunch of chickens in a tiny cage together and gave them nothing to do all day, um they would start pecking at each other and in some cases cannibalizing each other, which is not a problem that you have in a, a backyard flock where they get to have like a pecking order and a social structure and, and room to get away from each other. Um, but because of boredom, this is an issue. And rather than deal with, you know, the things that we are doing in our farms that cause the issue, we are just harming the birds in order to kind of put like a quick fix on it. So it, it's really there's so much in industrial farming that is like fixing the symptom and not the disease um, that just creates more welfare problems for the animals. Yeah. What do you think is the future then of of 
chicken farming and egg farming because i mean you mentioned like the the pasture raised and and you know we've mm-hmm. seen great examples locally where you've got like chuck tractors out in a big field that's this big mm-hmm. sort of i guess like caravan for chickens you know and they're just roaming around this massive area and then they go and, and have safe harbor at nighttime in there mm-hmm. but i mean is that sort of thing the answer or do you just think that the it's not going to get to that stage because of cost and all that sort of stuff a little bit of everything, unfortunately. Um, one of the issues that I think about a lot when it comes to like just general animal agriculture, not just with chickens, is especially lately, you know, climate change is a, a real concern and intensively farming animals is a major contributor to climate change. And while Chickens do have a smaller footprint um, than beef. Like we raise so many of them that that's still not negligible. Um, but there are a lot of people that, you know, are switching from eating beef all the time to eating more chicken, which is a net good for the environment. Like if you were eating one pound of steak a week and now you're eating one pound of chicken, like that is better. However, the animal welfare between those two animals is much worse. And now you've you've tipped the scales. Um, and you see that happening actually pretty frequently, where if you're looking at the like footprint for intensively farming a lot of animals and land use and the fact that like to graze a lot of um, steer or chickens in the pasture, like you need a lot of land and room. And maybe that land would be better served being like habitat or something that can give back to the environment. So there is a certain argument to be made for if we are going to, you know, eat animals and and animal products, like intensively farming them is better. Um, So I think really the only answer that that is good on all sides is we just have to eat less. Like we have to farm fewer of these animals. We have to eat less of them. We have to do it in a way where, Maybe we can intensively light raise, you know, some of them or just only have them on pastures. And maybe that becomes a a rare thing because, yeah, there's there's just no way that we have enough room to feed people on the scale we are currently doing and do it humanely and in an environmentally friendly fashion, um, which... I think, unfortunately, is not not an answer that people would like to hear, but I think just what it comes down to at, at the end of the day. Yeah, there's a couple of things that spring to mind there. I think um, I love the work of like Joel Salatin and mm-hmm. the polyface farming method where they sort of have different types of animals on the same land, but just being mm-hmm. cell grazed. And so you get like the, the cows pooping and then they leave that for a few days, move the cows on, and then five days later, the ch- chooks are sort of... Uh, brought in there and they scrape the poop around and uh, to try and get the mm-hmm. bugs out of the poop and and it sort of fertilizes the land and and I think there's so much there in that sort of regenerative farming model of you know having using using natural systems in a much more effective way and and therefore the animals living in a much more natural environment but um it it sometimes costs more as well and that yeah, extra it costs cost, a lot more yeah. and you're not getting as much out yeah. of it too yeah um, so we almost yeah, need when- to. I was just going to say, we almost need to make like food like that's grown like that. It's almost like a delicacy because mm-hmm. it, it, you know, it's been, you know, animal well-being is so much better and, and yeah. arguably the, the meat is so much better and tastier and, you know, free range. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so it's almost like a special treat. You know, you flip your menu around, you eat veggies most of the time. And then you, your Sunday best yeah. is you have, you treat yourself to some really well, well-managed farmed, farmed meat. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. That would be nice to see. But I mean, in the meantime, there are smaller changes that people are are looking into that I think are quite helpful. Um, one of the things that people are talking about, you know, especially when it comes to chicken meat, is we over the last like 50 or 60 years have so um made these birds just put on weight so quickly that they reach slaughter weight at like six weeks old, um, where it used to take months um, for that to happen. And they're much larger. It's like six pounds in six weeks versus two and a half pounds in six months, um, which I believe is what it would have been more in like the 20s or 30s. 
Um, and that is not healthy for the birds. Um, like if you go, are they using steroids and things like that? They're not. It's just breeding, um, which is crazy. And yeah, people talk so much about, you know, genetically modified animals. But what you can do with hyper selective breeding is also kind of mind boggling. Um, and it's gotten to the point where if you try to keep these birds alive past the six weeks, you can't do it. Um, and the parent generation of these birds, because they have to live long enough to become like able to mate, um, they have to keep them on like very, very strict diets, almost at starvation levels their entire lives, just to keep them alive long enough to lay eggs that will be the next generation of these birds, um, which is wild. So I think a lot of people don't even think about things like that that we could change on on a welfare level. There's a lot that we could do to tweak the birds just to grow a little bit more slowly that I think would be immensely helpful for them to be able to do like their natural behaviors. Um, and yes, food, food would cost a little bit more. It would take a little bit longer, but it doesn't even have to be well, we have to wait to be able to have like a beautiful regenerative grazing structure to make make a difference for these animals. Um, we can really start with even just what are the animals we are raising and are we going for who has the most breast meat the fastest or can we actually look at like what is a healthy bird? Yeah, why? Is, is the color, I mean, looking at the in the eggs in the supermarket, the mm -hmm. big question I have is like in the US and Japan, eggs are white. And then in Australia and the UK, eggs are brown. Like, is there a, is that just a species of bird or is that the, the things they're being fed or what, what causes that? It is the species of bird. We do also have brown eggs, um, but they are a little bit more expensive because they come from a type of bird that takes a little bit more food and they're slightly larger than the ones that lay white eggs. Um, so yeah, there, there became this whole funny health halo around it, which is, Slightly true because you that do was like what need I was a little, thinking. yeah, you do need a little bit more space and money to like care for these birds that lay the brown eggs. But by and large, eggs are eggs. Um, the color that they are going to be is determined by genetics. So every single egg starts off as white because calcium shell, the calcium is white. Um, and then as they go through the oviduct and that egg is forming, um, different pigments go on it almost like printer toner. <laughs> um, and it, it's funny if you look, I don't know if you have any hens that lay blue eggs or like green, but when you crack them open, um, the inside of the shell is kind of bluish or green. But when you have a brown egg, it tends to be white on the inside. And that's because the blue goes on earlier in the process. So that pigment goes through the egg in a way that it doesn't with the colors that that come on later, which I thought was so interesting. Once I, I saw that, I thought they were just like, you know, I don't know, extra fancy chickens or something. But it's like, <laughs> no, it's just when it's it's going on in, in the process, how much of the color is is present throughout the shell. Wow. And well, do we have any chicks that they, we did, didn't two, we? Two. Two, yeah. Oh, they just, they've gone off the lay a bit, haven't they? Yeah, because it's winter. Yeah. Yeah. No eggs for us <laughs> yes. at the moment. Um, yeah. But at, yeah. at what stage does the, the calcium actually get put on the egg? Because if it's got to get fertilized, that's obviously, are we talking like a, a week delay or something? Or? No, it's pretty early on. I believe it takes about 24 hours for an egg to form. Um, so you have kind of the, the yolk and white situation and that gets, that is what is fertilized is like the, you know, egg, <laughs> the egg of the egg. Um, and then the, the calcium is put on. <laughs> it's kind of like spun around as the calcium forms around it. And then these different processes take place down the line. Um, so yeah, you would start with kind of like goo. Um, if you've ever seen a, um, a necropsy of a chicken, they're born with like all of the eggs that they're going to lay. And it looks really crazy. It's kind of like a I don't know, terrifying string of pearls with just all of these eggs in, in various states and, and sizes, and they kind of get bigger toward the end as they're like closer to forming. Um, so yeah, that's, that's how they start. It's this weird like <laughs> string of, of pearl eggs. I've heard this somewhere. I don't, I can't remember where I heard it, 
But um, can hens actually hold the sperm of roosters, different roosters, and choose which one they want to use? They can. Um, it's wild. They can. So if multiple roosters mate with them, they have a way to just like eject the sperm of roosters that they are not interested in anyway. Um, so that that is how that happens. So they do have like a little bit of choice in the matter. I'm sure it's not like 100%. Um, but overall, if they're like, you are a much better father than this other rooster over here, um, they can make that decision. Wow, that's a big call, isn't it? And, and I know. Like, in your book, you write about uh, tidbits as well. You know, it's the rooster mm-hmm. that throws them the most food that they 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 like. Yes, exactly. And they track that information, which I loved. I loved that someone did this study about you know roosters who fake tidbit, <laughs> like pretend that there's food when there's not, and that the hens are like, "Oh, I am, I am on to you. Like, you are calling me over." not giving me anything in return. And then they remember, um, not just at that time, but like days later when it's time for mating, they're like, absolutely not. <laughs> you blew <laughs> it. for you. Yeah. You did not give me the treats that you said you were going to. So that's it. Why? Because so, what does the rooster do then? The rooster literally says, hey, girls, over here, there's some really cool food. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So he's calling them over for food and some of them will try to call the hens over and, and not have food and they they learn. Um, it's like the boy who cried wolf, but for, I don't know, chicken romance. So. <laughs> All right. Okay. So many questions. Um, <laughs> now, is it true that you shouldn't keep ducks and chickens together? I have heard that. Um, I do think some people successfully keep them together. There can be a problem, especially with male ducks and chickens, because if they attempt to mate, their systems do not work well together. Um, a, a rooster does not really have a penis, and so they mate through the cloacal kiss, <laughs> where their their bits just kind of touch briefly and then the sperm is transferred. Um, but ducks have a, a very long penis. And so if that happens, it can be quite damaging to the hens. So that is one reason that people don't. Ducks are also just messy. Like they want water, which is not great for chickens to have. So it takes a lot of cleaning, especially to have them in a smaller space. Um, I think certainly if there was more room, you could probably keep them together. Um, but in a, a small group, especially if you had like a lot of male ducks around, um, I would worry about it. Yeah. Hang on. So we just got to back up. So <laughs> roosters don't have penises. No, they don't. <laughs> They they have like a little tiny bump, like way, way in, but that's it. So when they're sexing chickens, that's what they're that's what looking so for hard. is this like tiny, tiny little bump inside their cloaca. And that's like the only visible difference when they're first born. So Wow. Yeah. And that's why it makes sexing it so birds, hard. Very yeah. difficult. Yeah. Same parrots too are really hard to sex. Usually unless you get a DNA test, you just don't know unless someone lays an egg. So I know of many people that have had parrots in their family for, you know, five, ten years and they're called Shirley for, for many years. And then one day they're like, Oh, you're a boy. Actually, <laughs> surprise. <laughs> um, so yeah, not not uncommon at all. Wow. Well, we could literally pick your brains for hours but <laughs> highly aware of your time Tova thank you so much for taking the time to chat with Annie and myself it's been yeah highly informative and highly yeah. entertaining and just love the work thank you've you. done now um your book Under the Influence yeah it's amazing mm-hmm. um I'm, I'm taking it people can just buy it anywhere that you can buy books Yeah, you can buy it all over the place, no matter pretty much where you live. Um, So there's there's hardcover, there's ebook. I read the audiobook, which was very fun to get to do because if you've ever met me and I've talked to you about chickens, that's basically me reading the book. It's just this, um, but a little bit more, you know, refined and and edited. uh, So that that helps. Um, But yeah, you you can get it wherever you like to get your books. Great. And where can people find you online as well? 
I am, I have a website, uh, tovadanovich.com. You can find me there. Um, and my chickens have a very good Instagram, which is at best little hen house. Um, I also have one under my name, but theirs is honestly better. So if you, <laughs> if you only follow one, like you may as well follow the chickens. Um, but you can find me there. Uh, can open worms everywhere. <laughs> like, I, 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 I think that sounds like a rabbit hole that you could totally fall into. I, I love chicken Instagram. It's a it's a wonderful place. It's a nice part of the internet. So <laughs> excellent. Well, Tova, thank you so much. Annie, do you have any last things you wanted to say to Tova? Thanks for coming on the, the show. Thank you so much. I love talking to to young chicken people, especially. So this is a treat. Well, thanks for listening. I hope you found Tova as insightful and inspiring as I did. I highly recommend checking out her new book, Under the Influence. I'll put a link in the show notes at thedadmindset.com. I'd also like to say a very special thank you to my co-host, Annika. I think she did a way better job of hosting a podcast on a first attempt than I ever did. If one of these episodes has resonated with you, and you haven't already, the thing that you can do to help the most is to follow the podcast on Apple or Spotify. Sharing the show or your favourite episode with friends is, of course, awesome and really helpful. For podcast updates, please subscribe to the newsletter, which you can find along with all the show notes at thedadmindset.com. Well, that's about it from me for now. I hope you have a great week, and as always, enjoy your caffeinated beverage. (laughs) 